This episode of the Pain Education Corner is sponsored by the Camella Foundation. The Camella Foundation is committed to relieving pain naturally using osteopathic healing principles. Here at the Camella Foundation, we envision a world where people achieve their maximum potential by being empowered with knowledge and skills to heal themselves and others. This information is to be used for educational purposes only and not to be construed as medical advice. If you have any questions or concerns, please consult a licensed healthcare professional. Hello, it's Bill, the Knee Pain Guru, and welcome to the Pain Education Podcast brought to you by the Camella Foundation. Uh, today, we have a special guest from the, the United Kingdom. Uh, it is Dr. Deepak Ravindran. Welcome. Dr. Ravindran, we'll call you Deepak moving forward now. <laughs> but thank you so much, Bill and Ani Guru, for having me on your podcast. Great to be here. Yes. So I've, I'm delighted to have a doctor on the podcast. I think that's fantastic. And I, I really want to get your perspective on how you approach pain and how you see that like through your lens. Would you kind of share your story to how, uh, what got you here today? Well, absolutely, Bill. Thank you for that. So um, for those of you who are on the other side of the pond, hello, and uh, thank you for listening in and tuning in onto this uh, episode there. And uh, my name is Deepak Ravindran, as Bill has introduced me, and I am a consultant in pain medicine and I work in a district general hospital. It's one of the sort of second or third biggest in the United Kingdom and it's a place called the Royal Berkshire Hospital in uh, Reading. Not the one in Pennsylvania but the Reading in Berkshire mm -hmm. in United Kingdom and uh, I've been there working as a consultant for over 12 years now and uh, from the time I finished medical school, that takes me to roughly 24 years finishing medical school that I've been in the practice of looking after people with pain management, uh, with pain. Um, my primary qualification is in anesthesiology and I've done critical care and pain management. And I came to the UK to further subspecialize in pain medicine. And that was my interest because that's been a kind of fascination for me in terms of looking at pain from multiple angles, because the way we read it in medical school and the way I was taught back in India where I did my medical schooling is that predominantly that pain is always going to be something that's from a structure, that pain is an indication of danger and that there is always a reason why pain happens. And if you investigate hard enough you will find a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And that model did serve me well, or at least when I did my fellowship in University College of London, I trained in Oxford as well before taking up my role in Reading. That was what my fellowship was about, you know, understanding how to block it, 
I learned all the different kind of nerve blocks and different kind of spinal injections that we do for a variety of spinal pain and knee pain and other kinds of chronic pain as well as acute pain. Uh, I was doing epidurals for labor analgesia, so I was seeing the benefit of what an epidural can do in the acute phase. But I was starting to realize that if I did not choose the right kind of patient and I did not understand pain well enough in that context, in that person, then I wasn't getting the success. And, and unfortunately, by the time I was in my second or third year of a consultant, 2012, 2013, I was starting to realize that the success rates of my interventions was only about 50, 30 to 50% at best. My medications, I was very comfortable giving opioids and, and other kinds of strong medications, over-the-counter stuff, prescribing strong stuff. And I still was finding that it was fantastic when I used it in acute pain and in surgery and during anesthesia, but I was not really getting the success and patients were not getting the benefit beyond two or three months when it came to strong drugs. Obviously in 2010 and 2012, 13, I was taught like many of my colleagues in the US that pain was the fifth vital sign. If you can give an opioid high enough, you should get pain relief. I was taught all the stuff that's now there on DOPSIC uh, as, as really a different kind of teaching. And I believed that until I realized actually that it wasn't really the truth. I had the kind of Michael Keaton movement uh, in about 2015 when I realized that a lot of what I'd learned in medical school wasn't panning out to be true when it came to various kinds of chronic pain. And that was very much the case with knee pain because with knee pain, I was seeing a different kind of demographic in my pain clinics. I was starting to see that people were still presenting with knee pain even after surgery, even after keyhole surgery, even after washout. Sometimes the pain was much worse. And that was when I went down this rabbit hole and realized that actually post-surgical knee pain is present in about 20 to 25% of patients, meaning that one out of every four or five wasn't going to have a successful knee operation despite the surgeon being absolutely sure that they have done a fantastic job, which really meant that I needed to understand pain a whole lot different than what I'd been taught. And that's what started me on this journey of understanding pain in its complete, what we call the biological, the psychological, the social aspect of the entire picture. And that journey of four years is what's been allowed me to write this book, The Pain-Free Mindset, mm. which uh, you guys are aware of. And, and Bill, I hope that that's been one of the reasons for why I'm in front of you today talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, tell, me, tell me more, because uh, I have heard of a study where they did, uh, they did a placebo, a blind double blind study where it was like they took half of the people with arthroscopic knee surgery and it was like okay you actually get the surgery they had a torn meniscus that was the prerequisite for it half of it got the the real surgery where they operated on the meniscus the other half that they um, just put an incision in the knee and then um, they did physical therapy afterwards both groups did physical therapy afterwards and 
they couldn't tell the difference. Like there, there was no significant difference between the two groups. How does that tie in with what you were just sharing? Is it? it that is being the, um, one of the fundamental game-changing understandings we have about placebo itself, Bill. I think you, you've, you've hit the, you know, kind of the nail on the head figuratively when you asked me that question, because uh, for the benefit of, of your listeners, it's not just knee arthroscopic surgery alone. There's been this kind of double-blind placebo studies done for shoulder washout surgery, for cement injection into the vertebrae, or so vertebroplasty surgery. Wow. And in yeah. fact, there's this surgeon from Australia called Ian Harris, who wrote a book called Surgery as Placebo. So he actually implied that the very act of any surgery is unfortunately in many cases, often a placebo itself because he noticed that when you want to introduce a new surgery, unlike when you want to introduce a new drug to the market, the drug manufacturers have to really do a lot of very rigorous scientific studies. They have to do a lot of phase one and phase two and different kind of double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials before the drug actually comes to the market. But if you look at the history of surgery, most surgical techniques have been introduced as it were because there's been one expert who does a few of it, who has a good success because of the way he or she does it. And they talk about it a lot and that just becomes popular and then it becomes accepted practice. So when Ian Harris and a group of people, for example, in the knee surgery, in the knee arthroscopic, they did this exact, as you said, one group received a washout and then physio, the other group received a placebo. So what they did in that group was they anesthetized. So they gave a gentle anesthetic. They did the whole ritual of bringing someone to the uh, hospital to fast them, to get ready for surgery. They got given a gentle anesthetic. They got knocked out. They got their knees cleaned. And the surgeon actually put a nick, just a cut on the outside, but didn't do anything else. And then just put the bandages on. And then they're given physiotherapy. This is the exact thing they did for the shoulder washout as well. And lo and behold, one to two years of therapy down, both groups had improved the same amount. Mm. Both groups did not significantly reduce their pain medications. Mm. And both groups had about the same kind of, you know, people who returned to work, people who didn't return to work, people who still were visiting their primary care physician. And that really made a lot of people in the UK, I don't know how the American healthcare funders think about it, but in the UK, the National Health Service has actually said that they wouldn't fund arthroscopic knee procedures anymore because there was no evidence that it was superior to good physiotherapy, good physical therapy. Wow. So they actually, many places on the National Health Service, you, you have to really prove that there is a reason for doing a knee washout for arthritic changes or meniscal tears. And then unless until it is acute meniscal tear, or there is a clear-cut reason and rationale, just because you've got age-related arthritic changes and meniscus degradation, you aren't going to get the permission or the approval to do 
a washout. And, and that's because we now understand that the placebo itself, you know, the sheer act of what we call as a dummy pill or a sugar thing, the sheer act of doing the ritual in surgery changes how patients' expectations from that procedure is. And so if you wow. can actually get a low-cost, nothing-done placebo effect, a ritual that you can do, and you can get the same benefit, the same outcome, the same improvement, then why would you not do that? Why would you want to put the patient through a one-way, irreversible, down-way like a surgery sure. if it's not going to give you the benefit? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I'm super curious <laughs> as to what you've discovered as the how does how is this working? Is it a mindset piece? Is it a um, an emotional piece? Like, wh where did you find out that it was kind of upped your success rate in terms of what you learned post surgery? Okay, I mean, the first thing was in taking down this division. So we never talk about this one word, and this has been like my. Uh, cornerstone of what I try to talk to patients about when mm -hmm. I describe pain. I, I try to make a distinction between variations, what we know as pain and what we should be actually calling nociception, meaning the act of injury. When you have an injury, when you have a knee, acute knee pain, you have a sporting injury and you have a swelling and inflammation, you have chemicals that are released at the site of that injury. That process is called nociception. It's a slight mouthful. It's a slightly tricky word, but it's a very important word because that release of chemicals occurs every time somebody sustains an injury anywhere. Let that be a heart attack or a operation or a major surgery or a hip or a knee replacement or an acute sporting injury or a fracture. That chemicals by themselves are just the same standard chemicals. It's not a pain chemical. It is just the same set of chemicals that are released. These chemicals travel in certain nerves and they reach the spinal cord and then they go up to the brain. And when they reach the brain, the brain is processing these chemicals deciding on the context, where were you when this happened? What were you doing when this happened? It's going to compare it to its memory to say, did this happen before? And what did I do at that point of time? And if it decides that it needs to institute protection, that it needs to bring out the defense forces, that is the time that it brings out the experience of pain. So actually, nociception need not result in pain every time because if these chemicals occur during the course of a sport and the person is very involved and it's a good thing that's going to come out at the end of it because it's going to mean a result of a touchdown, sure. then actually you won't have the same intensity of pain as someone else who struggles in falling down or an accident that occurs when they are, they've been hit by a bus or they've been going to be hit by a car. And even in that acute phase, you might want to run away from a bus and get out in time. So a small sprain or a twist in your knee, you're not going to be aware of it because the bigger danger is the bus. 
once you then get out of harm's way, that's when you might start to become aware. So pain is a kind of protection. And actually, the moment I realized this distinction and how important it was, whether it was surgery, whether it was after surgery or before surgery, it meant that when there is chemicals released, nociception, I could really expect my drugs, my medications, my interventions, my steroids, everything that we do in mainstream medical practice to make a big difference when there is chemicals being released. But when that chemicals are not the big picture or when the context is different and the pain experience is significant, then I need to really look at the whole person because to dampen the way the signaling and the processing is happening, I cannot achieve that with just a drug or just a surgery ever at all because that will require a different set of you know, tricks in my toolkit to use for my patients. Got it. Oh, wow. My brain is going in a thousand different directions. That is so, because I'm trying, I use certain terminology when I work with clients uh, on online. Uh, and there's, there's a completely different level and area of specificity you're bringing to this call today, which is fantastic. And I love it. I just want to make sure um, I'm understanding. Uh, so how do you know the difference between the narcissception, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, and if it's something else? Is that a, a t like a test you could take in the body? Or would you explain that a little bit, please? Yes. Yeah. So it's... Um... Nociception. So it's N-O-C-I-C-E-P-T-I-O-N, nociception. Now, to a great extent, we do have, you know, the standard blood tests that show for inflammatory markers. Like in the UK, we have got CRP, C-reactive mm -hmm. protein, and then the ESR, which is the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Then there are a couple of other immune blood tests to see whether those levels can be raised. So if an activation of the immune system or these kind of inflammatory chemicals are increased in the blood, then that to me indicates that there is a level of infection going on. Mm -hmm. Of course, then the clinical signs of inflammation, you know, the swelling, the redness, the uh, area of injury that seems to be swollen up, temperature rise, all of those would be the usual clinical and biochemical lab indications mm -hmm. for ongoing active nociception. Mm -hmm. If these are not to be evidenced in any examination, then you already are looking at some other factors that could be contributing to the pain experience. Uh -huh. And that means you can't just stop at the medications or the interventions. You need to bring in the other aspects of what I call the mindset, but you need to bring in uh, the N, for example, in my mindset acronym stands for the understanding of neuroscience and stress. The D stands for the sort of the diet and the microbiome and how gut health can make an imprint. I can go into that a little next time. Um, then the S is for where sleep is interfering with how the neural circuits are processing pain signals and then the e physical activity how that's going to change it and finally 
therapies of the mind and body because they all can have a powerful influence in how the signal is either amplified or dampened in the spinal cord and in the brain. Hmm. Got it. So what I hear you saying is a very comprehensive approach, holistic, if you will, um, of looking at all of these other factors. Um, Absolutely. You know, for me, the biggest game changer, if you will, has been in the areas of the the stress and the, the diet and microbiome. So one thing that I've realized, which we were never taught in medical school, is actually that the immune system is massively connected to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And we were again taught that there are no immune cells, particularly within the brain. But now we know that in every part of the spinal cord, mm-hmm. we were always taught that the signal arrives from one nerve cell and kind of jumps across into the next nerve cell. Mm-hmm. And we always thought that that's how the signal just floats across. But now at each junction, there is a representative of the immune cell, which acts like a traffic policeman, constantly watching for the signal traffic. And it looks at those signal traffic and decides if it needs to amplify or dampen it at that level. And these traffic policemen have got uh, surveillance cameras, if you will, built into them that are looking out for any form of stress-related chemicals. That can be physical stress, like a fever, an injury, or a surgery, or an accident, or it can be emotional stress, as in a bereavement, or a shock, or even trauma trauma that goes all the way back to childhood. All of them are going to be priming the immune cells and regained in their memory for activation at certain point of time, And once that comes through, the immune cell is deeply linked to the nerve cell, and that can spill over anywhere from the gut right into the spinal cord, through the vagus nerve, through the parasympathetic system. This is where the way we were taught in medical school about the mind and the body, the dualism. To me, it's as clear as day that in the last 10 years, the research that's come around the microbiome and the stress understanding completely shatters that the mind and the body were ever separate or could ever be considered separate. It's fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm curious if we could go through your acronym uh, for the mindset again. I have, I got down some of them, not all of them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So the M is micro. So the M is like, as you rightly said, Bill, I wanted to look at a more integrated and holistic approach. And so the M is for medication. So, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater to say that there's no role of meds. Sure. And it's always possible that somebody might have a level of nociception, which is some chemicals that get released. For example, you have a flare-up of your osteoarthritis, you've got a flare-up of your rheumatoid or your psoriatic arthritis. There may be a low-level CRP or an ESR that's going up. It may not be sky high, but you may still have that. And that means that you do need medications. They could be your pain medications. They could be biologics. They could be other more targeted medications for your headache or for your other Mm -hmm. forms of pain, even creams that you'd want to apply for knee 
The I is for interventions of any kind. Now, they might be infusions if you are needing it for your arthritis or for your cancer or whatever stuff. It could be surgery or it could be the spinal injections, the steroid injections, because there's a place for them. The N is the neuroscience uh, and the stress. The D is for the diet. The S is for sleep hygiene. The E for exercise and physical activity. And T is for therapies of mind and body. Got it. Okay. I like it. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Pain Education Corner. If you have a special talent or skill to relieve pain and you'd like to become a guest on our show, visit us at thecamellafoundation.org forward slash interview. Help us spread the word on eliminating pain and suffering in the world. That's thecamellafoundation.org forward slash interview. And where is there a specific area outside of once we get on the other side of the, the medication part uh, of the, the mindset of the intervention, the neuroscience stress, uh, neuroscience, um, diet, sleep hygiene, exercise, and therapies that you see most people suffering with pain? Is, is one of those in particular you see them get stuck on most? I think in my pain clinic, when patients often come, it's because they are asking me to say, well, what could be the next tablet or an injection? So they're still stuck on the M and the I. Right. And they have said they have tried one course of physical therapy, or they might have tried a bit of acupuncture, Mm-hmm. but they haven't really thought about anything else. Mm-hmm. And so it does give me the opportunity. And in my service, in my clinic, I do get a questionnaire to see how confident they feel about their pain. How worried are they about their pain? How much is mood impacting on them? So that if I have to create a plan for them, I do find that the therapies of mind and body is definitely something that they have either not tried fully or they've not understood the role there. Sleep is often impacted by pain, but they have never been given advice on how you can manage to get a good prescription of nutrition and sleep and how you can dovetail each other to make a difference. And stress, everybody assumes and they know that, okay, they've got to get take care of stress. And I don't want to minimize it because we've all gone through the roughest and toughest of times in the last two years where each one of us has been stressed beyond our belief there. And there was absolutely nothing we could do about this kind of stress that we all have collectively gone through. So I don't say it's easy to just walk away from the stress and breathe it away, but actually it's hopeful when we can tell them that if you can combine all this and if you can get your family to sort of support you in how you can reduce some of the stress or mitigate for it or understand when it can trigger and manage for it, then that's a step in the positive direction. So often my discussions center around how can we make this happen? And that's where I've got my colleagues of physiotherapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, all of them working to actually give this piece. You know, we do groups on the National Health Service. We do one-to-one support where it's required. A lot of times it's about supporting people to realize that they haven't done any harm, 
but medications or interventions aren't going to be the answer alone. So we need to pick up other strategies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I. What are your, in your perspective with diet, where do you see the biggest tweak and adjustment that people need to make in terms of reducing pain in their body? Body, okay, fine. So as a preface, before I just sort of give away the points, as a preface, I want to maybe once again, emphasize to your listeners that I don't know if they knew, and maybe maybe you know that, did you know that actually the biggest immune system collection outside of the spleen, or for that matter, anywhere in the body, is actually your intestine. Your intestine has got the 90% of your immune system of your body is in and, in and around the GI tract. Mm. 90% of your serotonin, your happy molecule, is actually made in your gut before it travels to the brain. Huh. More than 50% okay. of your dopamine, your drive chemical, is made in the gut before it is taken to the brain, which means that your, uh, your gut and the immune system needs to be there in a maximum amount. That's the other reason is that your intestine is just one cell thick. So if you can think about it in terms of the wall, it's just a one brick lining that's there in your intestinal wall that separates the outside, which is essentially all the good and the bad bacteria, fungi, viruses that hang about there, and the good guys on the other side of the wall. And mm. therefore, your immune system is there in maximum presence there, because that's where the defense forces need to be, because that's likely to be the first point of breach that can occur when you have an inflammation in the lining of your intestine. Mm -hmm. So when you have that kind of a connection, the immune system is constantly on the lookout. And in a way, your brain is sitting in a box. And a lot of the inflammation is coming from the gut with the immune system through the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic system that's there. So actually, what the kind and the composition and the diversity of the bacteria, the virus and fungi that you have there is very important because if you have too many bad guys there, they're going to cause a lining of the intestine to become inflamed. And that's going to release a lot of the chemicals into the circulation. That's going to hypersensitize the immune system and that's going to spill into the nervous system, making pain worse. So I say all of this because looking after your good guys in your gut become massively important. Mm -hmm. And what we then realize is we don't want to inflame the bad guys into becoming mm -hmm. more proliferative in your gut. And the foods that have been identified as really causing a lot of inflammation are generally the processed foods, the mm -hmm. biggest. Sugar is the next big culprit. And then in some people who are over time develop antibodies to lactose or diary. So diary and gluten intolerance is the next one. And then there's always the concern these days, uh, I'm not an anti-meat or somebody there, but we realize that a lot of meat, unfortunately does come from a not organic breeding, but it comes from factory, 
bread, yeah. antibiotic laden meat production. So then that can be another way where antibiotics get through the meat and they enter into the gut and cause a wipeout of your good bacteria, allowing the bad stuff to proliferate. So that's where I think if I want to suggest gut health, I talk about an anti-inflammatory diet that's low and very low on processed foods, low in sugar, low possibly in gluten or dairy, and then looking at adding in some antioxidants, you know, things like A, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin D, and other micronutrients. I, I really like how you broke that down. That was, I, I understood and what I share is regarding reducing inflammation, but I hadn't had anyone put it in, in a very succinct structure like that, that okay. it just makes perfect sense as well as in a hierarchy. Uh, I did not recognize the processed foods, the sugars, the gluten, the dairy, and then the factory meat was like how you would want to prioritize that process yeah. and understanding that. But it makes total sense in how the systemic inflammation in the body started in the gut, just it goes everywhere. And then now whatever aches, whatever ails you now feels 10 times worse because the inflammation in the gut is out of control. Absolutely. So. I mean, it, it seems to be the process also in people who have got, um, who are obese, you know, who have got a high BMI. We always used to think that people who have knee pain, who are weight, you know, you would suggest weight reduction as a strategy. But we realize now that actually, even though you might reduce your weight and go for a knee surgery, they don't get relief from knee pain. Mm -hmm. And we sort of think, okay, maybe it's not just the biomechanical loading, but now we realized actually that in a lot of people, even those who look thin, there's this uh, concept called TOFI, T-O-F-I, thin on the outside, but fat on the inside, because most of the fat or the people who are generally fat end up storing it in and around their intestine, in and around their tummy. And in there, the fat, almost fat by itself, a fat cell, Mm -hmm. acts like an inflammatory organ. It releases chemicals that actually confuse the immune system and the nervous system in the local area into thinking it's an inflammation going on. So they then send out their firefighters and actually the sheer act of being fat itself releases inflammatory chemicals that can mm. be setting up a pro-inflammatory state. Huh. Wow. That That is a... You like I said, you're bringing in angles that I hadn't considered or thought about. So I truly appreciate, appreciate this. Thank um, you. There was a question that I had. I've been taking notes here just to kind of um, track on this. Um, On the biomechanics that with the exercise and the PT, what level or what angle are you looking at in understanding what may be out of balance biomechanically in the body? To a great extent, I think um, with regards to knee and knee pain itself, there's so much of change that can happen in 
how the knee behaves depending on how the ankle varus or valgus or whether you have a flat or an arched foot and how the pelvic angle is will all change how the elements of the femur and the tibia the you know the thigh bone and the shin bone interact with each other and sure. how therefore the kneecap actually changes whether it's on the inside or the outside and how and more importantly than all of this we now realize how much your sort of quadriceps your quads and especially one half of the quadriceps makes a difference on how it pulls the kneecap to the outside or the inside all of these are biomechanical elements which are going to be impacted by the joint above and below, namely mm -hmm. the hip and the ankle. So sure. when I do the examination, I see whether there are these elements of change in ankle and hip that can secondarily impact on the knee itself and the way flexion and extension of the knee occurs, how the quads move, how the vastus, you know, the particular muscle in the quads changes the position of the kneecap. So all of these make a difference in how I understand the biomechanics. I work with a physical therapist colleague of mine who I sort of bow down in superior wisdom to in terms of how she interprets and looks at and arrives at a rehab regime. And in, because of the hospital I work in, I've got a huge bunch of knee surgical colleagues that I can tap into as well for further advice and support. To a great extent, the patients, when they come to me with chronic knee pain, usually there are two kinds. One are the patients who have very severe arthritic changes, but cannot have surgery because they have other medical conditions that make surgery too risky. Or is the other group who don't want surgery at all and want to, don't want to go down the route of replacement for as long as possible. And there's a third group that come along who have had post-surgery. Uh, and uh, I find that they are a different group because for them, it's again, the scar, the nerve damage, the muscle change, the changes that have happened to the ligaments and the biomechanics around the surgery site can impact on how everything moves afterwards. Mm -hmm. Those were the three that I commonly recognize, but in the last three years, I was starting to see a group of people with, you know, probably like those who have a background condition like fibromyalgia or probably people after a road traffic accident where they haven't had any obvious knee injury and their x-rays are looking fairly normal for their age and the surgeons have done an injection and it hasn't worked, but they are there because they've got knee pain, which really hasn't made. I mean, I'm not talking about the you know, the athlete's knee and all of that, the more athletic type, the frontal anterior knee pain, which is a very different ball game. I think there, there is a much bigger role for good quality, the kind of work that you do in terms of supporting them with physical therapy and the mindset. There's a big, massive role in how you employ the rehab techniques out there. But these are the four categories that I get wherein I notice that there may be other things that I can do with regards to medications, interventions, plus all the other bits of the mindset that I spoke to you about. And the, the, the component that you're looking at for physical therapy, is it, um, is it primarily exercise 
Is it uh, physical manipulation of the joints? Uh, can you give a- Can you expand uh, on that part there? I, I'd like to say that I, I have a regime to recommend, but I would have to say that in this case, I let my physical therapist Got it. make that decision on what would be suitable, whether there is a manipulation that would be an element or whether there would be an element of working on the whole limb as it were, sure. to look at the pelvic biomechanics and then work on the knee secondary. So I don't want to prejudge and say that these are my preferences because I have often worked with the physical therapist on this aspect. Well, yeah, that's what would make you so brilliant is that you would be outsourcing something like that to someone who has that uh, a different area of expertise and focus. So yeah, yeah I like that. Um, talk about the, the sleep hygiene. I know that that's been a big topic across the board with the level of stress, especially the past two years, what everybody's been under um, uh, and, and the, um, the cell phone and Wi-Fi and, and all of the elect, uh, EMFs that we're exposed to on a consistent and a regular basis. Could you speak to that? That would Absolutely. be interesting. So for a long time, again, the understanding or the conventional wisdom was that if you had a lot of pain, your sleep would be disturbed. And so the option was, well, take a sleep medication or a pain medication at nighttime, which also caused drowsiness like amitriptyline. And that way you can sort your sleep out. That was the conventional wisdom. But the last 10, 15 years, we've now understood that actually the relationship between sleep and pain is bi-directional, meaning that it's not that pain causes lack of sleep, but in some cases, lack of sleep due to a variety of things, like the way you talk about, where mm. you haven't slept enough because you're overworking or you're doing night shifts for a long time, makes you actually vulnerable to getting chronic pain when you then have an incidental injury or an incidental problem. Mm -hmm. And that is a game change because it means that you can potentially make a difference to how your intensity of pain is by ensuring that you can improve on sleep. Obviously, it's a little late uh, in the day for people who have had the injury, but if you haven't had it, and I hope for some of your listeners who are listening to it, there is actually value in working at seeing whether you can get your sleep house in order as it were. Because if, if it, again, we all have housekeepers, cleaners to do the cleaning job, and for a long time in the brain, there was always a thought, well, actually, who cleaned up in the brain? Right. And what we now realize is that when you do get your share of sleep, maybe seven hours a day at least, there is a period of time where actually your brain cells shrink a little bit. So it's like imagining someone, you've had a busy football stadium, the game's really gone on. There's a whole horde of popcorn and drinks spread all over the place. <laughs> How do you bloody clean the place sure. at time? But if you can have a stadium that actually then at a certain point in the nighttime, everything folds up, all the chairs fold up and suddenly the ales become wide enough for you to do a much faster cleanup job, 
that's what your sleep phase actually gives you. Your brain gets the chance to do a good old fashioned clean job during the phase of a good sleep, especially what's called as the deep sleep. The NREM phase is when it can do its cleaning up phase and wipe out. And actually they realize that uh, if you can do that and you can get that seven hours there and you get a clean up, the brain then is able to function much more efficiently. It's like the servicing of your car that you want to do prophylactically rather than wait for everything to clog up. And actually the research now says that in people who end up getting Alzheimer's or they're getting dementia slightly earlier on, it's been noted even in our British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, she ended up famously saying she only slept four or five hours a day but one of the reasons that's now being thought as to why she ended up getting dementia is that if you don't have this cleaning up going on, then the rubbish gets stuck at certain junctions. Mm -hmm. And if the rubbish doesn't get cleared up from certain junctions at certain times, you can understand why those plaques form and they keep solidifying at certain critical junctions. And when those junctions happen to be your memory processing center or your visual center, or some part of your critical mood center, those are the places then where probably people are starting to get dementia or Alzheimer's with plaques early on. So there is a lot of reason for why we want to improve sleep because it has a valid reason for actually making a difference to your pain even before pain can become chronic. So that's the preface for why there. Once you understand this, I think sleep hygiene is, is a reference to a lot of good common sense habits that should be combined as a toolkit and together they can improve the quality and intensity and duration of your sleep in the most natural fashion. So for example, I would suggest to my patients that there is a very good reason for stopping coffee after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. There is a very good valid reason for stopping alcohol, probably, I mean, trying to reduce your alcohol, but if you have to do it, probably doing it on most days. I understand that sometimes you have to have social alcohol on the nights there, but stopping alcohol after 6 or 7 p.m. in the evening, aiming for between 7 to 9 hours of sleep would be what you're looking for. And then trying to ensure that you have a routine, like the way you want to put your child to bed. You have a routine on how you want to do a series of events about one or two hours before bedtime to get your child to bed. You know, you want to give a warm bath. You want to reduce the lights in your room. You want to keep the room slightly cool, not too hot. You want to get the Goldilocks movement for that. You want to take the child up to the room there, reduce the uh, stimuli, reduce the bright lights, all of those you'd not think twice when you want to teach your toddler to go to sleep. It's almost as if you want to get your brain into the habit of thinking, aha, it's eight o'clock now. This is the time I got to get ready for bed. Now, music is a low music, no visual stimulation, no adrenaline surging music or bright lights and use some warm bath to reduce the internal, to raise the internal temperature, have a cooling external temperature. And that all gives an indication to your brain that it's safe, that it can relax, that there is no threat 
After all, pain is a form of protection. And if it can sense that the nervous system senses that there is safety, then it will start to relax and it will then allow for sleep to start. That's the whole principle of sleep hygiene. There's a few more things that I talk about in the book. And I think the American Sleep Foundation has got some good resources that it can provide as well. Got it. That, that's, that's fantastic. I, I'm just, I'm blown away by all of these different angles that you're bringing in. Uh, the, uh, especially the component that uh, the, the lack of sleep or re reduced sleep can actually lead to pain. And I know I've experienced that before. I, I, it would make complete sense because when the body is deprived of sleep, the sympathetic nervous system is going to get kicked in more and uh, the body's going to be more tense in general because it's not as pliable and loose. So you go out and exercise because you're pushing through, you get a lot of the um, experts on the internet that are talking about being up at 4am and working out every morning and all that kind of stuff. And it's leading to many people getting injured. Uh, I, that's what I see. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm all for a 5am and 4am high quality productivity, which these internet YouTube creators talk about. I, I, I trialed it for about four to six months, but then uh, Matthew Walker, I, I would recommend your uh, listeners to check out this book by Matthew Walker. He's, I think, a UCSF or UC San Diego professor, or maybe Stanford, I'm not sure, but he wrote this fantastic, oh, Berkeley, I remember, he's UC Berkeley, and he's written this book called Why We Sleep. And, and he highlights that actually in, in nature, there are some of us who are larks who can get up really early. And there are some of us who are owls who will be at their most productive late on in the night. And it's very difficult to expect to change that. Maybe some of us can successfully change that and become owls to larks or larks, larks to owls. Mm -hmm. But I think for even those who want to get up at 5 a.m., you need to then proportionately push your onset of sleep time mm -hmm. to maybe 10 o'clock at night so that you still give yourself that seven hours because this is another interesting fact which I became aware only when I was preparing and learning and reading and writing for the book is that when you sleep you have these sleep cycles you have these deep and light sleeps mm -hmm. apparently each sleep cycle is about 90 minutes or so but the first half of the night whenever you go to sleep the first half of the night is your deep. There are more time you spend in deep sleep, but the second half of the night, you're more in light sleep. And when you sleep later and later in the nighttime, it's your deep sleep that gets sacrificed at the cost of the shorter light sleep intervals. And in deep sleep is when the lot of the cleaning up, lot of the archiving, all the memories, all the stresses of the day, all the part links and broken links are cleaned up and taken out and thrown into the rubbish bin. That all happens during the deep phase. So when you don't do that and you lose your deep sleep time and you compromise on your sleep hours, those are all the half broken links, half broken trauma, the stresses which don't get cleaned up and processed and properly archived, that's what then sets the stage up for then even a relatively mild trauma or a twist in your back or a twist in your knee to set off a chain of events because there are all these 
half done nerve circuits that just get fired up and wired up. And that's where you get the risk of chronic pain. In fact, in the medical legal world, some lawyers actually believe that fibromyalgia, there is actually three to five years before the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, they notice that people have disturbed sleep patterns, which puts them at risk. Oh, wow. Huh. That's very interesting. Um, gosh, Deepak, this has been an amazing time speaking with you today. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, the information you have to share, I think, is going to be valuable for so many people. Uh, for for those that are interested in, well, let me back up. Do you work with clients slash patients over the internet, or is this strictly in person in the UK? It, uh, I I have seen patients remotely from Europe as well as in the UK. There, I think a lot of it comes down to probably knowledge of the local team. Because as you see, my model of practice is a very integrated holistic model there. I need people along with me who can work on with sure. the client and there. So I definitely sure. give advice to overseas people there, but where the health systems are concerned, prescription of medication becomes a very uh, thorny issue outside of the UK. But suggestions about what can be done, where to do, what to do for, I'm open to consultations online. And I do, of course, have a face-to-face -face practice as well. Now that's come through. I might make a recommendation to your listeners because most of them are going to be uh, in and around the US there, mm -hmm. is to check out an app called Curable. I'm not sure if this is something that's come up in your previous podcast guests or or maybe you yourself know about it, Bill. Uh, I'm going to check it out right now. So it, it's a yeah. fantastic app. It comes out from the US itself. It's got a whole lot of uh, really good scientific advisory consultants and people on board there. And the app itself is for chronic pain patients. It's not necessarily for knee pain, but it really looks at this holistic approach to chronic pain and the various techniques that can be done. So there's a it's a freemium model. So there are a lot of things that are yeah. given free, but then there's a monthly subscription which opens up further support within the US itself, groups, one-to-one -one consultations, abilities to chat with people who think like me, who work like me in this model. So that's an opportunity that's or option that's open to your clients to look at and to your listeners. Uh, just so I'm in the process of downloading Curable right now. Yep, that is it. And uh, so I will definitely include that in the, the description notes below. Uh, and we'll put your contact information as well as a link to uh, more information about your book, The Pain-Free Mindset. Yep, I believe it's available on Amazon as well. And it's coming up to a year now. So yes, feel free for your listeners to download it. I think it's definitely available on Kindle, but the paperback takes about a week to arrive. Got it. Okay, excellent. And uh, do you have anything, was there anything that we brought up during the call today that I didn't quite ask? Uh, something you want to put a bow on, something that I didn't quite address as deeply or as fully as you would have liked? No, probably the only 
point I would want to say is there is an overarching philosophy to the way we should look after our pain patients now that we've all gone through COVID. And, and I like to use the term what's called trauma-informed pain care, mm -hmm. meaning that we need to understand that when we've all gone through different forms of trauma, that may be the trauma that people experience adversity in childhood to actually the various traumas that we've all been subjected to as part of COVID, isolation to poverty in different forms, to pressure, to stress, to job, everything. And all of that has an impact on our nervous and our immune systems all the time. And that means that we are always a little bit more vulnerable to feeling threatened. And that threat can be interpreted by our body as a way of protecting and bringing out pain sometimes in different areas where even imaging may not show anything. So that being that trauma-informed and bringing pain care in that lens, I think has been a very useful way to make sure that every person gets a more holistic way of looking after themselves and for me to suggest ways to look after themselves. Yeah, thank you. This has been fantastic. I, I, I just love your approach. I think it's uh, very valuable. I, I believe when there are doctors like yourself that verbalize this integrated approach, I think it's going to raise the bar across the board and help more people. So I think it's super valuable, super valuable. Um, thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. Yes, Deepak, thank you again for being taking your valuable time to speak with us today. Appreciate it very much. Uh, any last words before we wrap up here? No, absolutely not. Well, and I think for your listeners, please check out my name and the website there and the book as well. And uh, once again, look after yourself. Thank you. Great. Thank you once again, Deepak, for being with us today. This is Bill Paravano, the Knee Pain Guru on, for the Pain Education Podcast on behalf of the Camella Foundation. Thank you so much for listening today. Have a wonderful day, and we will see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning into this week's segment of the Pain Education Corner. Join us next week for another conversation on natural healing methods to eliminate pain. To learn more about the work we do at the Camella Foundation, please visit our website at the Camella, C-O-M-E-L-L-A, foundation.org. 